everyone, my name is Grant, and you are listening to the History of the Modern Middle East Podcast, Episode 2, The Eve of Revolution. Before we get into the episode, I want to apologize for the number of names that are going to appear in this episode, and how many times I'm going to have to repeat them. If more people were familiar with the history, I wouldn't feel the need to repeat them so often, but because most people, including myself, don't have a very intimate familiarity with the history, I feel like this is necessary. So sorry in advance if you are someone who is familiar with it. That out of the way, let's get started. In the previous episode, we covered the Ottoman reform efforts of the 19th century that were started by Selim III and would be at least partially ended by Abdul Hamid II in the 1870s. I say partially ended because although Abdul Hamid suspended the constitution of 1876, he continued many of the same reforms to the army and the economy started by his predecessors. However, it was his ending of political reforms that would eventually be his downfall, and mobilize the entirety of Ottoman society for one thing, deposing the sultan. And leading the charge was a loosely aligned movement of groups referred to as the Young Turks. The Young Turks are often referred to and thought of in monolithic terms, but this is far from the reality on the ground. There were various groups with differing ideologies, and these groups were made up of students, soldiers, intellectuals, and other elites within the empire. Some just wanted the Sultan to reinstate the constitution of 1876, some wanted that plus the removal of Abdul Hamid himself from the Sultancy, and some wanted to abolish the monarchy and establish a constitutional republic. All of these and many more ideologies were scattered amongst the Young Turks. Another thing that should be understood about the Young Turks was their elitism. The Young Turk movement was something of a successor to the Young Ottoman movement of the first constitutional period. Young Ottomans were mostly wealthy intellectuals who wanted political power to be more evenly distributed across the elites, rather than resting solely in the hands of the Sultan. The leaders of this movement didn't want the common people involved in changing the government, at most, they saw them as useful for putting social pressure on the Sultan. Much of the leadership for the various young Turk groups were living in exile abroad in the early 20th century. Under the rule of Abdul Hamid II, the Sultan had extensive political power, and thanks to numerous assassination attempts over the course of his reign, he became somewhat paranoid. Surprisingly enough, though, he usually didn't kill a political dissident. What he usually did was exile them to a far-off part of his empire that was disconnected with Constantinople. Yemen and Libya were popular destinations for some of these dissidents, especially the high-profile ones. Many of these exiles, however, chose to leave their internal exiles for a living abroad, with Paris becoming a very popular destination. Some of these exiles, though, weren't really exiles, or at least not in the way you and I would probably consider it. Some of these people, especially the well-off ones, voluntarily exiled themselves to live in Europe. One of these exiles, Damad Mahmud Pasha, was the brother-in-law of the Sultan. In 1899, Damad Mahmud Pasha, along with his sons, Sabahaddin and Lutfullah, both of whom were princes due to being nephews of the Sultan's wife, left the Ottoman Empire for Geneva, Switzerland. Damad Mahmud Pasha was harboring dreams of deposing Abdul Hamid II and placing himself on the throne, and because of this he had a hard time finding a country that would let him stay long term. So while he was in Cairo, he issued an invitation to exiles from the Ottoman Empire to meet up in Paris in 1902, referred to as the First Congress of Ottoman Opposition Parties, in order to formulate a plan to oust Abdul Hamid. 
Unfortunately, Damad Mahmud Pasha fell ill before the meeting and would die a year later. So his son, Prince Sabahadin, would have to take the reins. The biggest group that arrived at the Congress was the Committee of Union and Progress, which I'm going to be referring to as the CUP for the rest of this episode. One of the leaders of this group was Ahmed Riza, who has an uncertain backstory. All of my sources give different ones. One says that he was an agricultural scientist who wanted to improve crop yield of Ottoman peasants through science, and another says that he was an education minister for the city of Bursa. These sources are uncertain as to whether Riza was a founder of the CUP, or just a leading member. Regardless, Riza became the leader of his own faction at the Congress, which hosted numerous other young Turk groups, as well as non-Turkish groups such as some Armenian socialists. The members of the Congress met in February of 1902, with Prince Sabahadin residing as president. The various factions tried to come to a unifying set of goals and actions, but found themselves divided on two major questions. Should they seek foreign assistance, and should the government be actively overthrown or just reformed? The first question split the Congress into two major camps, one led by Prince Sabahadin, which became known as the Majority, and one led by Ahmed Riza, which became known as the Minority. The Majority consisted of most of the non-Turkish groups, as well as wealthier exiles who had connections with European governments. The Minority, on the other hand, consisted of middle-class professionals such as Ahmed Riza, when it came to the second question, the entirety of the majority supported an armed overthrow of the government, while the minority was split on the issue. Their inability to come to an agreement on these important questions resulted in the failure of the first congress and for the two factions to go their separate ways and try on their own to achieve their goals. Sabahadin would take the majority faction of the congress and form the Ottoman Freedom Lovers Committee, which I'm going to refer to as the OFLC. The OFLC had two governing bodies, the Central Committee, which was the general body of organization that was responsible for setting policy, and then the Permanent Committee, which would be in charge of handling crises between Central Committee meetings. Unlike the old CUP, the OFLC would be highly centralized in order to coordinate its efforts to depose the Sultan with foreign assistance. Representatives of the Central Committee went all over Europe, meeting with ambassadors and foreign ministers in hopes of securing some kind of material aid, but the Europeans were hesitant. Over the last century, the Europeans had been using the power disparity between themselves and the ailing Ottoman Empire in order to coerce reforms that would grant favorable trade conditions for the Europeans and improve the conditions of Christians within the empire. Since the end of the Tanzimat reforms and the suspension of the Constitution of 1876, numerous atrocities had been committed against Christians, either by Ottoman government itself or without redress by it. In particular, a series of massacres against the Armenians between 1894 and 1896 nearly resulted in European intervention. European governments weren't going to aid any group seeking to overthrow the Sultan unless Armenian groups endorsed them, and the OFLC did not have it. They would try to gain the support of Armenians by writing pro-Armenian articles for their own publications, as well as publications across Europe and America, writing in both Turkish and European languages. These articles tried to differentiate the OFLC from the Sultan and other young Turk groups, who actively spoke and acted illy towards the Armenians. They would also grasp onto anything positive said about them by the Armenian publications and try to spend those few stories into representing more than what they really did. 
Despite all these efforts, though, the OFLC never obtained an Armenian supporter. Despite their shortcomings, the OFLC did have some success in obtaining aid from the British. Or at least they almost did. Between the end of the Congress in 1902 and early 1903, the OFLC plotted a coup to overthrow the Sultan. It involved moving an army stationed in Tripoli by ship to put down an imaginary revolt in Arabia. This imaginary revolt would be used as a cover, because in reality the ships would take the army up to the Dardanelles to Istanbul, where they would team up with the palace guards to take control of the capital and overthrow the Sultan. This coup attempt was based around the premise of British aid in the form of protecting the Ottoman navy and mainland from a Russian intervention. However, when the general in Tripoli realized that the British's only intent was to not intervene against their coup, he and his army dropped out of the attempt, and like that, the whole plot fell apart. The sources that talk about this coup attempt are almost entirely Turkish. There are no official British documents that acknowledge the dealings between the Young Turks and the British diplomats. Most of the sources are from the memoirs of Turkish plotters and a few memoirs of British collaborators. Although there would have been benefits for the British to support the coup, it is far more likely that the British government wanted to use the OFLC as a bargaining chip to gain more concessions from the Ottomans, which makes sense given the history of Anglo-Ottoman relations over the previous century. The coup would not be attempted, and its abortion would result in the collapse of the Ottoman Freedom Lovers Committee, and one of its leaders, Prince Latfullah, voluntarily returned to Istanbul, where he was arrested, pardoned, and then retired from public life. The other majority leader, Sabahattin Bey, would temporarily take a step out of the limelight. While the OFLC was falling apart, Ahmed Riza and the minority faction were chugging along with their own issues. The OFLC had been unified under the plan of actively overthrowing the Ottoman government with foreign assistance. The minority faction from the First Congress was dead set against foreign intervention into their country, but they weren't quite unified on the means of creating change within the government. Along these lines, two sub-factions appeared within the minority. The Positivists, who wanted gradual change, who were led by Ahmed Riza, and the Activists, who wanted revolutionary change. Ahmed Riza embraced the theories of Charles Darwin, and applied them to politics, believing that just as animals evolve over time, so can governments. Of all the internal problems that usually occur within groups, the funniest that the minority had was over what to call themselves. The majority ended up calling themselves the Ottoman Freedom Lovers Committee, which I'm certain sounds more elegant in Turkish, but at least they had a name to call themselves. For the longest time, the minority didn't have a name. The activists wanted the organization to have a name so that when they committed acts of political violence, they could attribute it to a name. But the positivists wanted the organization to remain nameless, so it would be more difficult to pin them down. Within the positivist factions, Riza was most concerned about his own station of power, focusing much of the bylaws for the organization around the powers of the leadership. He would use his position of power to set up a new publication for the organization, and in it, many of the problems the OFLC had been trying to overcome, Ahmed Riza would actively embrace. The minority's publication was set up in Cairo. Being in Egypt meant that the Ottoman censors would have no power over them, as well as avoiding the efforts of Ottoman ambassadors in Europe trying to shut down Young Turk publications there. There was also the bonus of having easier access to Turkish typesetters. Within the publication wing of the minority, there were fights over how to run it, 
who would get to publish signed letters, and what kind of actions to call for. The conflicting objectives of the two factions resulted in contradictory articles being published. The positivists preferred to focus on education, while the activists preferred to focus on revolution. Despite their differences, though, there were a few themes in common to both activists and positivists in their writings. They portrayed themselves as anti-imperialists defending Ottoman sovereignty from both European powers and the Sultan who allowed them to gain a foothold in the first place. This goes in line with their opposition to foreign assistance in deposing Abdulhamid II, as they were ardently against occupation of the empire by European powers. Their writings also had a strong nationalist bent to them. Previous reform movements always used the term Ottoman instead of Turk to describe their demographics in order to gain the support of non-Muslims in the empire. While the OFLC actively sought support from minority groups, the Minorities Coalition actively fostered ill will towards non-Turks in the empire, going so far as to publish fake stories about non-Turkish exiles badmouthing the Ottoman Empire. They condemned the nationalisms of minorities living in the empire, all the while promoting Turkish nationalism. The calls for reforms made by the publications were very general in their nature, without addressing the concerns of Christians living in the empire. And it's here that I want to make an extensive quote from one of these publications to emphasize the hostile intent of the minority towards non-Turks. If there are among the Turks those who are hesitant to extend the right of citizenship to Christians, there are grounds for such hesitation. If a Christian happens to be a member of the Greek community, he looks towards Athens. If of Bulgarian, to Sophia. And if he is an Armenian, he dreams about the establishment of an independent Armenia. Attempting to wrest from us a piece of our homeland, it was the Greeks who rebelled yesterday. And now the Bulgarians and the Armenians are engaged in armed rebellion. Turks are witnesses to all this, and naturally are saddened and feel that Christians have hurt them. For those of you who know what the Ottomans did to Christians living in the empire during the First World War, you can see those motives didn't appear from nowhere. They were present within the Young Turks from the very beginning. The minority began to embrace the pre-Ottoman past of the Turkish peoples, talking more and more about their Central Asian roots. They promoted the use of the Turkish language by the government as opposed to the commonly used Arabic or the Persian used in poetry and music. They also proposed plans to resettle ethnic Turks in parts of the empire that were less Turkish in order to diffuse the local nationalisms. They also began to embrace Islam as a unifying power for the Turkish people. They weren't proposing Sharia law or anything like that. They were using Islam as a tool for political and social change. They were more obsessed with the idea of the caliphate rather than the religion it came from. Although the minority didn't have any major failures like the OFLC, without better organization, they wouldn't be in any better condition to affect the change either. But this would change with an influx of new resources and leadership. In 1905, the private doctor of an Ottoman prince was banished from the empire for sending financial aid to one of the Young Turk groups. This doctor was Bahadin Sakir, and when exiled, he used his connections to the old Committee of Union and Progress to find a place to go. Paris. Bahadin sought to unite the Young Turks under a single banner, along with the Armenians against Abdul Hamid II, and he began this by attempting to unify the activist and positivist factions of the minority. This would bring the doctor into concert with former intelligence director 
Ahmed Saladin Pasha, and into conflict with the positivist leader Ahmed Riza, who saw himself as the natural leader of the Young Turks. Bahadin had resources which Ahmed Riza needed, so he allowed him to form a new organization for the minority factions, which merged with the remnants of the old Committee of Union and Progress to form the, wait for it, Committee of Progress and Union, or CPU, which took up the mantle as the true successor to the CUP. He wanted the CPU to focus on reorganizing the resistance to the Sultan and training cells of activists to operate against the regime. Saladin Pasha wanted the group to focus on incorporating more of the smaller groups and other ousted Pashas into the CPU, while Ahmed Riza's first concern continued to be his own position of power within the organization. But just as the minority was reorganizing, so was the former majority. After the collapse of the OFLC, Prince Sabahadeen decided to step away from activism and focus more on education. He became interested in the ideas of Edmond de Molin, a French thinker who tried to apply the scientific method to politics and history. These ideas led Sabahadeen to believe that the key to successfully changing the empire came from educating the populace and changing the empire's administrative system to one that was more decentralized, which led him to creating a new organization, the League of Private Initiative and Decentralization, which I'm just going to refer to as the League from here on out. He would go on to found his own publication that focused on promoting the ideas of Edmund de Molin and encourage greater education in the empire. Sabadine, however, wasn't entirely uncritical of de Molin's ideas. He criticized it for lacking a revolutionary impulse, which Sabahadin still believed was necessary to affect changes he wanted. But with his ideas, he managed to strike a balance between the activists and positivists of the CPU. He also kept the majority's belief that they should seek foreign intervention in their revolution, which meant he needed to reach out to non-Muslims in the empire, especially the Armenians. Out of fear of negative reactions to the anti-non-Turkish publications of the minority, Sabahadeen wrote a letter to then-U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt, in which he condemned the Europeans for lumping all the Muslim peoples of the Ottoman Empire together, and then proceeded to blame the plight of the Armenians on the Kurds. Unlike previous Young Turk groups, the League was pretty populist. Sabahadeen encouraged dissidents from around the Empire and in other countries to form their own chapters, and follow his plans for a revolution. A student organization in Istanbul reached out to him and was adopted by the League, along with numerous other groups across the Black Sea coast of Anatolia. Between 1905 and 1907, there were rebellions and demonstrations along the Black Sea coast. And depending on who you ask, the League may or may not have had a part in them. At the time the Black Sea coast rebellions were occurring, the people of the empire were living with unpopular policies of the Sultan. Young, able-bodied men were being conscripted and sent off to put down a rebellion in Yemen. To help pay for this ongoing conflict, the Ottoman government introduced two new taxes, a poll tax and a livestock tax. This tax was on top of an agricultural tithe of which farmers were required to give 10% of their yield to the government. On top of the new taxes, agricultural goods were selling for less and less on international markets, which discouraged investment inside the empire. And so, one of the first rebellions was seen in Diyar-e-Bakir, in which both the local populace and the imperial representatives complained of a local Kurdish tribal leader, Ibrahim Pasha. 
Ibrahim Pasha led his Kurdish soldiers into raiding local Turkish villages and was overall a dangerous nuisance to the region. In early August of 1905, a crowd occupied the local post office and demanded that Ibrahim be stripped of his rank of Pasha and that he be punished. After many back and forths between the activists in Istanbul, Ibrahim Pasha was eventually put under house arrest in Aleppo, along with the activist leaders being suppressed. Another one of these rebellions occurred in Kostamanu, a place where political exiles were commonly sent within the empire. In the city of Sinab, a crowd of 2,000 people marched on the sub-governor's office and demanded his removal on December 9, 1905. The sub-governor was accused of corruption and nepotism, for which the sultan had him removed. This success led to a similar demonstration by guild leaders on January 6th, where they demanded an exemption from the poll tax. Messages were sent to the sultan by both the provincial governor and the guild leaders, ultimately resulting in both the removal of the governor from office and the expulsion of several guild leaders to Ankara. Similar events occur in Trebizond, in which the governor is removed from office and the leaders of the demonstration are expelled. The city of Erzurum saw revolts in March of 1906, where both Muslims and Armenians protested against the poll and livestock taxes. After a year which included the cutting of telegraph lines and hostage-taking, the governor was replaced and both taxes were abolished throughout the empire. However, the protesters weren't done yet. They wanted more. Armenians living in rural areas converted en masse to Islam in order to deprive the Ottoman government of the revenue from the jizya, a special poll tax that only applied to non-Muslims. Soldiers garrisoned in Erzurum mutinied against their officers in protest of having not been paid. When government representatives disappeared after failing to appease the soldiers, further violence erupted, and this went on until all semblance of sultanic authority disappeared. This resulted in the locals taking control of local administration. After this happened, everything calmed down, at least until grain shortages sparked a new round of unrest, which was eventually put down by government forces. These revolts against the sultanic authority reinvigorated the League and the CPU, but would they work together? The CPU came into conflict with the League, each believing that it would lead the revolution against the Sultan. The CPU went as far as to badmouth the League for its reaching out to Armenian groups, all the while reaching out to those same Armenians. In competition with the League, they set up chapters in Bulgaria, Romania, Crete, Cyprus, the Caucasus, Bosnia, Istanbul, Izmir, and Arabia. After the Black Sea rebellions, the CPU organized a new Congress of Ottoman Opposition Parties to be held in Paris in 1907. Along with the League, they also invited the Dashnacht, which is an Armenian socialist group. It was not easy to get all the groups to agree on goals. Ahmed Riza demanded that the Armenians recognize the Sultan's rights as caliph over the empire, which the Christian Armenians were not too interested in doing. The compromise that was reached was that the Dashkanakt would have no official position on the issue. The Armenians, however, took issue with the CPU over its lack of revolutionary zeal, not matching that of the socialist Armenians. The CPU delegates responded to this criticism by pointing to the plight of the Ottoman peasantry, claiming that this impoverished state was due to the Sultan's corrupt governance. They ultimately came to enough compromises to get the organizations on the same page so they could act together against the Sultan, and so they agreed to a set of goals and tactics. Their goals were to force Sultan Abdul Hamid II to abdicate, to change the administrative system of the empire, and to establish a consultation system for a constitutional government. 
Their tactics would consist of armed resistance, strikes, tax evasion, and propaganda. However, the Sultan was not just sitting around doing nothing while subversive groups sought to take his empire from him. While the Young Turks were busy trying to unify their factions, Abdul Hamid II was trying to unify his empire. Past Sultans tried to unify the empire through a kind of Ottoman identity, but this was never fully realized. Because the Ottoman state was officially Sunni Islamic, this made the Shia of Iraq, the Christians of the Levant and Western Anatolia, and the Jews all throughout, incapable of embracing the Ottoman identity. So, under the reign of Abdul Hamid, a concerted effort was made to unify the people of the empire under Islam. And as much as we might think that that was a bad idea, in a period of growing nationalism among ethnic groups within the empire, it was probably the only way to do it. One of the biggest reasons for this was that the Ottoman Empire had become more and more Muslim over the last century. You see, before the Islamic domination of the region we know today, much of the Middle East was actually Christian. In particular, the western half, which had been controlled by the Eastern Roman Empire. After the tribes of the Arabian Peninsula were unified under Islam, they invaded northward into the Sassanid and Byzantine empires, completely conquering the Sassanids and conquering everything south of the Syrian and the Byzantine Empire. Despite this conquest, Christianity remained a large presence in the Middle East, with some historians estimating that Christians were still the majority by the time of the Crusades nearly 500 years later. But of course, as time went on, the Christians dwindled in number, but remained a potent force. But the 19th century saw a faster Islamization of the empire than before. The 19th century saw the Ottoman Empire lose territory in North Africa, the Caucasus, and the Balkans. When the Balkans were lost, many of the Turkish Muslims who lived there were relocated to Anatolia. The same happened with Muslims living around the Black Sea when those territories came under Russian control. These territorial losses simultaneously made the Ottoman Empire lose Christian subjects and gain Muslim ones. With Muslims becoming an even greater percentage of the population, it only makes sense to use the ideology that will unify the greatest number of people. And for the early 20th century Ottoman Empire, Islam was the obvious answer to that. The government began printing thousands of copies of the Quran and distributed them for free to Muslims within the empire. The Sultan also used his own personal funds to rebuild and restore mosques. He strictly observed Islamic festivals and holidays, along with promoting more Arab Muslims to high levels of office than any Sultan in living memory. The Sultan also pursued an Islamic-centered foreign policy. The Ottomans sought to be the representative of Muslims in Africa at the Berlin Conference, along with Ottoman agents meeting African chiefs and offering them special titles. They also targeted Muslims in Central Asia, which interfered with the moves of Russia and China. On top of the battle for hearts and minds, the Sultan was also fighting for his empire in a material sense, by going after the Young Turks and the use of infrastructure. The Sultan's government was not going to wait for an attempted coup before going after the Young Turks, and their first targets were the leaders of the majority, Prince Sabahadin and Lutfullah Bey. The two of them, along with the numerous other attendees, were sentenced to death. The Ottoman government then went after Sabahadin's father, Damad Mahmud Pasha, who fled from his posting at Rome to Switzerland. The Ottoman government sent demands to the governments of Europe to deny Damad Mahmud Pasha entrance into their countries, most of which were denied, but with a promise that they would keep an eye on him. 
Finding it hard to get at the Young Turks physically, the Ottoman government decided to go after them financially. Students who had been going to school in Europe at the Ottoman government's expense had their stipends cut off due to their assisting of the Committee of Union and Progress. They also confiscated the properties of Young Turk members and had any relatives of theirs working for the Ottoman government dismissed from their jobs. They also went after their bank accounts in the empire. Although these moves didn't put an end to the Young Turks, it did financially cripple them and intimidate potential supporters. Along with going after members of resistance groups, the Sultan sought to better control the empire through infrastructure developments. Toward the end of the previous episode, I mentioned all of the railroad building the Germans were doing in the empire, but it was more than just that. The Ottoman government leased the land the railroads were built on, along with the mining rights on those lands to the Germans. This was actually a very good deal for the Sultan, because the rail lines were directed through territories that the capital didn't have as much control over. This made it easier for the Sultan to deliver soldiers to regions that were in revolt. Along with the rail lines, the Germans also agreed to build telegraph lines along the railroad, as well as military installations for the Ottoman army. And the cherry on top of the cake is that during times of war, the Ottoman government would have the authority to take complete control of the rail lines and to use them to transport soldiers and other military goods. However, building the railroads wasn't as simple as the deal made it seem. In order to pay for it, the Ottoman government had to sell bonds, but it didn't sell enough of them. And construction had to stop for a while in 1906 due to a budget crisis. You might also remember a little while ago when I talked about the Black Sea Rebellions, when the army couldn't be sent out to put down uprisings, and when in Erzurum the soldiers themselves mutinied over back pay? Well, the budget crisis was a big reason why that happened. The Sultan also distrusted the army. After all, it was the army that deposed the last two Sultans. Abdul Hamid II trusted the army about as much as Mahmud II trusted the Janissaries. Due to this distrust, and budgetary pressures from European bondholders, the Sultan had a tendency to put payment for the troops as the lowest priority of the army. This has a catastrophic impact on the morale of the army, which is of course a violation of rule zero of politics. Keep the army happy. This made the army a ripe recruiting ground for the Young Turks. During the 1906 budget crisis, a small group of officers in Damascus, among them Mustafa Kemal, known later as Ataturk, established a group called the Ottoman Freedom Society, or OFS. Branches of the organization were founded among the officers of the 5th Army Corps in Jaffa and Jerusalem. But more important than the 5th Army Corps was the 3rd Army Corps, located in Macedonia. One member of the OFS, Omar Nasi, had published some revolutionary material in a children's journal in Salonika. An arrest order was made for him, but he escaped and made his way to Paris, where he met Ahmed Riza with the CPU. The OFS and the CPU began to orchestrate their efforts against the Ottoman government, but the Sultan's spy network was well aware of their meetings. As 1907 turned into 1908, more and more rumblings of a possible conspiracy grew, and so the Sultan sent more agents to find information. Abdul Hamid feared that this conspiracy would be present at the upcoming summit between King Edward VII of Britain and Tsar Nicholas II of Russia. The Sultan feared that this conspiracy of the army and the Young Turks would be used by the British and Russian empires to carve up the Ottoman Empire once and for all and bring an end to the great game of Eurasian imperial competition between the two. Unfortunately, this is where I must draw the line for this episode, but stay tuned for the next episode when the Young Turks finally enact their plans 
for a new Ottoman Empire. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at historyofthemodernmiddleeast at gmail.com. You can also reach me on Twitter at GrantGHurst or on the Facebook page. The sources I used for this episode are listed on historyofthemodernmiddleeast.com. If you liked the episode, then I would greatly appreciate a review on iTunes or whatever podcasting service you use. Except for SoundCloud. I'm not on there. So, thanks for listening, and I'll hopefully see you in three weeks. Thank you.